Let's read together God's word. Acts, that's twice. John chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias, or in Greek, actually, Galilee of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Why? Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Jesus, uh, Philip answered him, six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many people? Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who is come into the world. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. We have been working our way through what are called the signs in John's gospel, the indicators, the pointers. Think of signposts to who Jesus is and why he came that are um, peppered across the gospel of John. And this morning, we come to the next one, Jesus feeding the 5,000. I want to walk through this text with you and see what God might say to us. I pray that he will speak to you. Now, you might say, I know this passage back to front. Um, Well, I pray that he will bring some new insight to us, that he'll open our hearts and our minds, and that we'll really understand something of what God might say into our hearts today by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you, first of all, to look at John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called Galilee of Tiberias. Why does that matter, and why am I going to take three or four, maybe five minutes to explain why this matters? Because always within the context of the Bible, before we can understand what a particular passage has to say to us, we've got to try and understand the context of the passage. And when you read after this at the beginning of John chapter 6, we've got to think after what? What was going on that was so important? You see, what we read is that Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. I would suggest to you that he did that because he was tired, because he was trying to get away from some of the attention that had been generated around what he just said, and he needed some space. But included in the reasons for going was what he was going to do in this sign and what that was going to say. Jesus had a direct and a challenging confrontation with the religious leaders of Israel in chapter 5 of John's Gospel. All because, back in chapter 4, and turn back in your Bibles to it with me, in verses, uh, he had healed a man on the Sabbath. And I want to read verses uh, 16 to 18 of of that passage. John chapter 5, verses uh, 16 to 18. Give you a chance to find it. Jesus has healed a man, and here is what we read. Therefore... The Jews started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. He'd healed the man on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is still working and I am also working. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, thereby making himself equal to God. There's the reason Jesus is crossing the other side of the sea. He had done three things that were upsetting the Jewish leaders. Firstly, he had healed a man 
on the Sabbath. Secondly, it was the healing itself, but it was the fact that it was the Sabbath that was so disrupting and um, disquieting to them. And thirdly, he was claiming to be equal with God. John chapter 5, verses 16 to 18 are important words because we begin to see the anger of the Jewish authorities against Jesus' claims, not just his healing, but his claims to be equal with God. That is what will eventually see him killed. Because he is claiming not just to be a good man, not just to be a teacher, not just to be kind, and not just to be a healer. He is claiming to be God's. And that's what signs his death warrant in the end. And Jesus then enters into a profoundly challenging exchange with the Jewish leaders of his day. Look at verse 19, verse 24, and verse 25 of John chapter 5 for a minute. That's why you need to bring your Bibles to church, folks. When I say look at it, you're able then to flick back to it. Um, Verse 19, verse 24, and verse 25. Here's what we read in John chapter 5 as Jesus talks to the religious leaders. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you. Verse 24, very truly, I tell you. Verse 25, very truly, I tell you. He's having a direct confrontation with the man that will eventually sign his death warrant. He wants them to understand something in those three very trulys. In verses 19 to 23 of John chapter 5, Jesus is explaining a unique and an intimate relationship between the Father and the Son. That means that he, Jesus, the Son, is perfectly representing the Father's will on the earth. And that is a thing that is astonishing according to him. And he says to these leaders of Israel, failure to honor the son is failure to honor the father. And he gives them three examples of it. In verse 20, he says, greater things I will do. In verse 21, he says, just as the father gives life, so I will give life. And in verses 22 and 23, he says, just as the father judges, he has entrusted all judgment to me. Stop and think about that for a minute. No wonder Jesus needs to get away. He's just said, this is only the beginning. And just as the Father gives life, I give life. And just as the Father brings judgment, he's entrusted that to me. So I am the ultimate judge of the earth. This isn't a cozy story in John's gospel about a man getting healed or about people getting fed. This is Jesus Christ saying to the people of his community, I am the son of God. I have the power to forgive sin. I have the power to make a judgment about whether you will live or you will die. I have the power to uh, guide you and to shape you. Coming to church isn't just a social encounter. It is a meeting with the living God. The one who holds all things in his power. In John chapter 5 verse 24, Jesus explains to those that he's talking to that to hear and believe the Son is to have eternal life. And he says, when you hear and believe in the Son, you pass into new life. And to choose not to pass into him, to choose not to follow him, is to choose not to pass into new life. Then, that's the second verily I say to you, or very truly I tell you. The third very truly is in verse 25, when he talks about the fact that he knows the hearts of all men. That a discussion, a confrontation, a dialogue, an encounter with the Father is unavoidable, and an encounter with the Son is unavoidable. I want you to read with me verse 28 and 29. I'm not going to make a comment on it, I want just to read it to you slowly. Do not be astonished at this. For the hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. In John chapter 5, verses 30 through to 47, Jesus challenges profoundly the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jewish people. And he challenges them by saying in verse 35, you believed John the Baptist when he came. In verse 35, he describes John the Baptist as a bright and a shining light or a burning and a shining light. Then in verse 36, Jesus says, my testimony is even greater than John the Baptist. But he listened to what he says. 
The works that the Father have given me to complete, the very works that I am doing, testify on my behalf that the Father has sent me. He says, if you want to know who I am, look at what I'm doing. Not what I will do, not what I have done. The very works that I am doing tell you who I am. And then he goes on to challenge these religious leaders. And he says things that you would never expect to hear said about religious leaders. In verse 38, he says, they have never heard God. They've never seen God's form. They do not have his word abiding in them. And they do not believe in who God has sent to them. Then he says in verses 39 and 40, they search the scriptures, but they can't see the son to whom the scriptures point because they will not come to him. In verse 42, he says to them, they don't have the love of God in them because they've rejected the son. In verse 45, he says, you claim to be faithful, but your claim is false because the very foundation of your claim, Moses, points to me. And they claim to believe what Moses has written, but they are following themselves and not Moses. Because Jesus says, Moses points to me. A remarkable verse in verse 47 for those of us who are Christians today and have disregarded the Old Testament. Before we get to John 6. Look at John chapter 5 verse 47. But if you do not believe what he wrote... How will you believe what I say? Think about that for a minute. Those of you that are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, if you do not believe what Moses wrote, how can you believe what I say? That's a profound challenge, isn't it? If you disregard all that God has said and done in the Old Testament, how can you believe Jesus? Whose whole life is built on it. Whose whole purpose flows out of it. Whose whole identity is shaped by it. Be careful, sister. Be careful, brother, that you don't follow the popular trend of disregarding two-thirds of Scripture. If you do not believe what Moses has said, then you will not be able to believe what Jesus says. So then we come to chapter 6. But let me apply that background to us for a moment. Standing for Jesus Christ can be hard in the church and in the culture. It can look at us and not understand who we are because it doesn't understand who he is. And yet there's a call upon us, just as Jesus was calling Israel, to believe in him, to trust him. He promises greater things. He promises that he gives life. He also promises that he will bring judgment, good judgment, kind and merciful and gracious judgment. To believe in him is to pass from death to life. Resurrection is unavoidable. So we have choices that we need to make. If Jesus said to these people, these leaders of Israel 2,000 years ago, you have such strong witnesses in John the Baptist and in Moses. How many more witnesses do you and I have? We have John the Baptist. We have Jesus himself. We have the Old Testament. We have the New Testament. We have the history of the church. We have what he's done in our nation, what he's done in our communities, what he's done in our lives. There are so many witnesses that point toward him. But just as Jesus asked the leaders of Israel, I ask you this morning, do you know his love? Do the scriptures make sense to you? If they don't, it's a challenging thing. But what Jesus says here is, if we do not accept him, then the scriptures will, will make no sense to us. That's why millions of people can read the Bible and not get anywhere with it. There's an intrinsic challenge to understand the Bible, we need to see Jesus. And when we see Jesus, the Bible comes alive. It begins to make sense to us. When we allow him to be the lens that we wear, we can read the Old Testament and understand what it says and apply it into our lives, as well as the New Testament. That requires faith. And so we come to Jesus feeding 5,000 people on a hillside in Galilee. In verse 2, you note that when he, of chapter 6, you note that when he goes, trying to get away, presumably, from people, there's a whole load of people follow him. 
Why? Verse 2 tells us very clearly, a large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. There's nothing wrong with being attracted to Jesus because he does something for the sick. There is something wrong with that being the only reason that you follow Jesus, however. In the middle of this bustle of people, we know later on that there are at least 5,000 of them. Jesus sits down, as he often does as a rabbi. And in verse 3, we read that he starts to talk to his disciples. Even in the midst of a busy, busy space, Jesus talks to his disciples. We read it in verse 3. In a crowd like this, in a crowd like the one I was at this week, in a crowd outside in the street, God knows those that are following him. And he talks to us. He wants to guide us and help us. He looks around in verses four to six and he sees that these people have come and that they've nothing to eat. He realizes that they are hungry and he's worried about it. Not worried about it, he's aware of it. He still has compassion. He still knows what to do. He always wants to display God's glory and he turns to one of his disciples and he says, what are we going to do to feed these people? Now, we're told in the text that Jesus knows what he's going to do. And uh, the response back is in verse um, 7 and verse 8. In verse 7, Philip responds to Jesus when Jesus says, what are we going to do to feed all these hungry people? And Philip's response is, I don't know. That's the Northern Ireland version of the story. (laughs) He said, there are so many people here that six months wages wouldn't give them as much as a wee tiny bit of food each. If this was happening on the Antrim Hills or in the Castlereagh Hills, he'd say they wouldn't even get a wee bit of a soda. There's nothing that they, there's six months wages wouldn't feed all these people. In verse seven, and then in verse eight, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, comes and says, there's one, there's one wee fella here and he has a wee bit of food. Look at verse eight. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. That's the food of poor people, by the way. That's all that they have. And they give him all that they have. And Jesus knows what to do with that little gift. We know that from verse 6, where he has said um, he knew what he was going to do. In verse 10, he makes him sit down. In verse 11, he takes what the little boy gives him. Then he gives thanks in the same verse. And then he satisfies their hunger. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Not one of them went hungry. Nothing is wasted either, because he collects all the baskets, all the remnants that are left, and 12 baskets are full. Jesus turns our little into enough. And with our enough can feed the world can satisfy the hunger of all those around us and then in verse 14 you read these words when the people saw the sign that he had done they began to say this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world this miracle of feeding 5,000 people has such a profound impact on the people that are watching that they declare that Jesus is the one that they have been waiting for What is this sign about? What might God say to you and to me about it? Now, I don't want to be dismissive, so please don't hear me as being dismissive. But those that tell you that in the end, this is fundamentally a story about bringing your little to Jesus and he can use it and trusting him to give you enough and all of those things are missing the main point of the text. That is all true. Malcolm Duncan can bring his little to God and he does something with it. Malcolm Duncan can supply our needs. God can supply Malcolm Duncan's needs. God can look after me. God can care for me. God promises all of that. But there's something far more important going on in this passage that is so important that when the people that are fed see it, they declare that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that the prophet that was sent. I want to take a little while to help you understand that because if you can get that and I can get that, then... It is a remarkable story. Thankfully, we don't have to guess because Jesus himself explains later on in the chapter. From verse 22 on, he tells them exactly what it is that he has come to do. I want to read part of that from you, for you and then make some comments on it as we go through. 
Go to verse 25. When they find him on the other side of the lake, that's those that were following him, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, what sign are you going to give us then, so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, very truly, there's that phrase again. I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. It is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But I have, I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe me. Everything that the Father gives me will come to you, and anyone who comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life. And I will raise them up on the last day. That is a remarkable exchange between Jesus and the people that he is talking to. Because we know it so well, we miss it. They are seeking someone who can, they are seeking something that can satisfy them. We know that from verses 26 to 28. But here's what he says about himself. Listen to these words. Those of you that are Christians watching online and those of you that are not yet Christians. When they ask him, how did he get here? And that was another sign that we'll look at next week. And what's he doing? He says in verse 28 of John chapter 6, I am the one on whom the Father has set his seal. These people would have been astounded at that. He's using language from the Old Testament, trying to explain to them something about who he is. The bread wasn't just to feed their hungry bodies. The bread was to say something about who he was, and it's tied up with another piece of bread that we will come to in a minute. But do you notice the exchange? It seems to happen all the time in the Bible. I think it still happens all the time in the church. They say, so who are you and why are you here and how did you get here? And he says, um, I am the one on whom the Father set a seal. And they then say back, well, how do we do the miracles that you do? Where did that come from? And he says, no, no, you need to listen to me. And they say, yeah, but what we really want is the miracles. We want the signs. Perform a little, Jesus. Do another thing for us. We're not really interested in who you are. We're interested in what you'll do for us. And Jesus is consistently saying to them, you're not getting this. Do you realize why I fed those people? Do you realize who I am? And they say, well, how do we believe then? And in verse 29, here's the thing that he says. It's not complicated. It's not hard. It's not difficult to understand. Verse 28, they said to him, what must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in whom he has sent. How do we feed 5,000 people? How do we do the things that God wants us to do? And Jesus said, it's not about that. This is the work that he wants you to do. Believe in me. But that's not what they want. So immediately they say to him in verse 30, what sign are you going to give us then so that we may see it and believe you? Now, maybe it's only me. Maybe I'm the person that is slow. But when I read this story, I think, have they not just seen 5,000 people getting fed? 
Have they not just witnessed something remarkable? Of course, they didn't all witness that, did they? The people that witnessed it were those that were close enough to Jesus in a crowd of 5,000 people to see what he did. They didn't all necessarily see right in the middle of a crowd of 5,000 people, Jesus taking just a handful of fish and a handful of loaves. They saw the end result. I wonder, did they think, well, I wonder where they got all those supplies? That there were 12 baskets left. Those 12 baskets that were left are symbolic. There were 12 tribes in Israel. There were 12 apostles in the New, in the, in, in the New Testament uh, believers. And in heaven, there are pictures of two sets of 12. And that signifies to me something that is really important. That God's people are made up of all those in Israel who believe and trust in Jesus Christ and all those outside of Israel who believe in him. And together, they make the new people of God. There's lots of symbolism that's going on in this story. And then Jesus gets to begin to talk to them about what they mean. Go down to verse 30 and why this is important. What are the signs that you're going to give? And then they say this, Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. It was my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Do you notice the change in clause? He gave it to you. God gives it to you. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread. I'm standing in front of you. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Let's think about this manna for a minute. Manna is a Hebrew word. Do you know what it means? You'll be excited about this. Maybe it means gift from God. Maybe it means remarkable grain. Maybe it means amazing food. Manna means, what is this? It's taken from the Hebrew, what? It means, what is this? You'll read about it in Exodus chapter 16, verses 31 to 35. The people of Israel are in the wilderness and they don't have anything to eat and God provides them quail and he provides them special bread. Every day, six days a week. On the sixth day, he gives them twice as much so they can gather for the Sabbath day. And he does it for 40 years. They never go hungry. Wonderful stories about the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Their shoes never wear out. Their uh, leather never wears out. They are fed and watered every day. They are provided for every day for 40 years. The bread stops. The manna stops when they enter the promised land. You can read about that in Joshua chapter 5 verse 12. And Psalm 78 verse 24, the phrase that Jesus will use in a moment, the grain of heaven is used here. And yet, in Numbers chapter 11, verse 6, telling the same story of Israel. After a little while of bread every day, getting this manna, going out and getting it, they tire of it. In Numbers 11, verse 6, they say, is this it? I wonder sometimes, you know, for those of us that are Christians, do we end up feeling the same way? Grace and mercy and tenderness and compassion and forgiveness and community and family and life and hope and a promise of God's presence. And we get so used to it that we get to a place without realizing it. We say, is this it? We want a miracle. We want something exciting. We want something flashy. We want something that will go pizzazz and bang and boom because that's far more exciting than eternal life. Is it? And I wonder if any of us sitting here or online have been exploring God for so long. And actually the issue with you is, sister or brother or friend, if you're not yet a Christian, you don't want the life that God is asking you to have. It's not enough for you. You want the other stuff rather than forgiveness and grace and mercy and hope and a call to follow him. So like them, you're like, is this it? And yet Jesus says, I am enough. They were absolutely dependent on this manna. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 3 and 16, you can read it. Read about it again in Nehemiah 9, 20, where he talks about it. Looking at the end of the Old Testament backwards, he says, God supplied your needs. And yet in verse 32, Jesus says, you keep saying that Moses supplied this special bread for you, but he didn't. God did. He said, this is the bread that continually comes down from heaven in verse 33. And they need it. Listen to what they say in verse 34. They understand this story. It's part of their culture and their history. But listen to what he says. They say to him in verse 34, they said to him, give us this bread always. We want this bread. We want this life. We want this hope. We want this grace. And they don't realize that he is the bread. I meet so many people. I met some this week. There might be some sitting in here today or online. And you hear about grace or joy or hope or purpose or meaning or forgiveness or a fresh start or um, uh, a sense of meaning in the center of your life. And you say back to somebody like me, I want that, I want that, I want that. I've never met a person who doesn't want that unless they themselves are ill and need help and support. It is a human desire to want life. When we don't want life, we are unwell. And Jesus says, I am that life. Everything that you want is found in me. I am the bread, not of heaven, but of life. I can sustain you. I can strengthen you. Listen to what he says so that they are not in any confusion in verse 35. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. God is enough. He's enough in our sorrow and he's enough in our joy. He's enough in our pain and he's enough in our celebration. He's enough when he is all we have and he is enough when the word offers us everything else. And I honestly believe with all of my heart that scripture teaches this, there is no genuine and eternal meaning, significance, purpose, hope, and life that is available outside of Jesus Christ. There is existence, but there is not life. And in case you think that sounds rather exclusive, read this passage again slowly. Read it with your children when you go home if they can read the Bible and understand it. Help them to read what Jesus says here because again and again and again, he says, whoever comes to me, I will feed them. Whoever asks me, I will satisfy them. Whatever they are going through, wherever they are, whatever they face, I am offering life to anyone who will ask me. There's no exclusiveness about that. The exclusiveness kicks in once you've accepted the gift. I am offering you life. And if you take life from me, you become my follower. And that means that we enter into an exclusive relationship. And that has demands on it that I'm going to place on you, not because I want to hurt you, but because those demands themselves lead to life. They will set you free from the things that control you. They will give you a new purpose. They will redefine your identity. They'll take your, um, your satisfaction out of material and temporary things and put them into eternal things. My demands and my requests are not hard and stringent so that I can be a manipulator or a controller. My demands of you are so that you might be truly alive. Our problem is, just like these people and the Pharisees in chapter 5, we believe our culture's offer of life more than we believe Jesus' offer of life. Religion gives us more security in our heads because of our thinking being so um, broken than Jesus does. Because religion says, if you press this button, you'll get this. If you obey this, you'll get that. If you do everything right, then you'll have earned something. 
And for those that don't like gifts, that don't like being dependent, don't like realizing that they're weak, the idea of earning something is better than the idea of having to be given it and accept it in humility and on our knees. That's the issue in chapter five. The issue in chapter six is a group of people who don't think that they deserve it. But he wouldn't love me. I mean, why, why would you give me bread? Why would you feed me? I, I didn't even have enough bread to come. Why would you want to give me bread? I'm hungry. I came with nothing. Are you telling me I can come with nothing and leave with something? Yes. They always want that bread. Don't we all always want that bread? He satisfies us. He's the only one that can satisfy us. And yet, they don't see him. Verse 35 makes it obvious. Verse 36 makes it obvious. Look at verse 41 with me. Then the Jews began to complain about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not complain amongst yourselves. No one can come up, come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me, and I will raise that person up on the last day. It is written in the prophets that they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat it and not, and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. <laughs> mm. Here are people who are desperate for real life. And here is real life being offered to them in front of their very eyes. I feel like that sometimes when I preach. I stand in front of a group of people and I think, the, the challenge that you're facing, the answer is here. The brokenness that you can't live with, the healing is here, not me. Jesus is the healing to that. Sometimes people will say to me in terms, how can people not be Christians? I understand that, but remember, many of us were in that situation once too. It's not, don't be dismissive of that. It's somehow because we, you, they have not yet seen who Jesus is, haven't grasped it, haven't received it, haven't accepted it in the same way as these Jewish people didn't. But when you see him, when you really meet him, when you discover who he is, everything is changed. And yet they grumble and they complain and they fight and they moan. They don't understand it. They can't get their heads around it. The manna that Moses gave in the wilderness eventually stopped. And they got hungry every day. The life and the bread that Jesus offers means that you will never be hungry spiritually. But fundamentally, under all of that, here is the remarkable claim of Jesus Christ. I am life. To know me is to know life. And then he goes on and says in the last section of the chapter that we have, and this is how you eat my bread. You eat my flesh and drink my blood. The early church was accused of being cannibals because of this passage. Because people outside of the church thought it meant that Jesus meant you had to eat him. It's where the Roman Catholic doctrine that the bread and the wine or the bread and the cup become the actual body and blood of Jesus comes from. That's not what Jesus means here. Because he didn't start taking bits of his flesh and give it to them today. He explains what he means from verse 52 on. He says, if you want to eat my bread, then you have to follow me. You have to do my will. To eat the bread of life is not just to come and become a Christian. It is to continually, for the rest of your life, follow 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's the bit that we're not so keen on. When you compare John chapter 5 and John chapter 6, you discover that both the religious leaders and the poor rejected Jesus. For one, he was making claims about himself that were too high. They couldn't accept that he was who he claimed to be. The religious leader said, "This, you're not enough for us. You you're just a man. And what do these guys say in John chapter 6? Did you notice? When he says, I am the living bread, it reads this way. The Jews began to grumble amongst themselves saying, hold on a minute. Isn't this Joseph's son? They had the same objection. You are not who you claim to be. Jesus said, I am enough for you. They said, you're not. I am the bread of life. You are not. I am the one that can bring you hope. You are not. The famous Irish or Ulsterman, C.S. Lewis, once talked about his journey to becoming a Christian. And in a phrase that has been used all around the world about the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, in the end, you have three options with this man. He is a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is telling the truth. If he's a liar, then look at the rest of his life. Does his life spill with lies? Does he lie when he heals? Does he lie with the poor? Does he lie with the broken? Does he lie with the people that are vulnerable and hurt? No, he never lies. A lie never passed his lips. Then is he, is he deranged? Does he have illusions about himself? Is he some kind of madman that needs to be withdrawn from society? Well, again, look at his life. There's no life that has made such sense. There's no one that has been as consistent. There's no one that has been as um, philosophically and intellectually coherent. Jesus was not just a carpenter from Nazareth. He was the wisest, greatest philosopher the world has ever seen. We forget that. His words made sense. He never wrote a book. But books have been written about him for 2,000 years. I saw a poster this week in the midst of all of the stuff that was happening at the beginning of the week at Westminster at one of the marches that happened earlier this week. And it was two uh, people that were holding the poster and on it were written these words. If Mary had had an abortion, we wouldn't have been in this mess. So you tell me what makes most sense. Somebody sent me a message earlier this week and said, how can you take a stand against this? Because people that might make a choice about having an abortion, those children could grow up sad and they'd be better aborted than sad. And I had a gentle conversation back saying, I'm not sure that that's the grounds upon which one can make some of these decisions. That we can decide the potentiality of whether somebody is going to be happy or sad. And then therefore decide that if we think they might be sad, they would be better not existing in the first place. Compare the illogicality of our society's discussions around tolerance and inclusivity and kindness and mercy to the logicality of Jesus. 
who welcomes all who will come to him, who sees dignity in every human being, who cuts across all of the isms, who takes away all of the um, things that make people feel as if they can treat another human being as less. Compare the wisdom of the world that says that you are successful if you've got money or power or wealth or connections to a Jesus that says you can have true meaning and purpose simply by being alive. You are worth something because you are human. Show me anyone that has been able to hold societies together better than Jesus' teaching. Non-Christians have understood that as much as Christians have. Gandhi once said, if I could find one community that lived out the Sermon on the Mount, I would become a follower of Jesus because it is the greatest moral piece of literature or writing or teaching that the world has ever seen. I once went a Secretary of State about something and I talked to her about um, the Sermon on the Mount and she said to me, you don't believe that. I said, I do believe that. She said, sum up your Christianity in one phrase. And I said, it's summed up in this way. There is nobody that we should not love and there is nobody that we should not help and there's nobody that we shouldn't care for and there's nobody that we shouldn't respect. She said, where did you get that? I said, the Bible. Jesus taught that. She said, he didn't. I said, he did. (laughs) She said, well, we defer. I haven't read the Bible. And I said, let me read to you. I was supposed to be in with her for 20 minutes. I was there for two and a half hours. I said, let me read to you the Sermon on the Mount. And I read it to her and she cried. And you know what she said? If the church really believed that, I would walk across broken glass to become a Christian. If there's inconsistency in the church, it isn't Jesus' fault. If there's inconsistency in St. Donald Elam Church, it's not Jesus' fault. It'll be mine or yours or somebody's, but it's not his fault. If we end up getting angry with the wrong people, don't blame Jesus. He was not bad and nor was he mad and that only leaves one option he was who he said he was the bread of life so with all of your logic Christian online and here and all of our education which I thank God for and all of our thinking and all of our rationality tell me which is the wisest thing to do To ignore the bread of life or receive it? How can it be illogical to follow the one that makes sense of everything, but logical not to? And in the end, we have exalted our reason and our understanding above the one that gives us life. And he stands, how can this be true? And yet it is. This person that we are talking about in this chapter who holds the entire universe in his hand, I'm going to be talking about that tonight, is in this room. I mean, why would he bother? He must have so many other things to do. And yet he is here with a couple of hundred of us and with you. And he says, I'll feed you if you want me to. I'll come to you if you ask me to. I'm ready to rescue you. All you need to do is ask me. Why then would you leave this room or turn off this podcast and continue to live hungry? Why would you turn away from drink if you are thirsty and about to die and say, no, I'd rather thirst, thank you. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is not the body of Jesus. This is bread. I'm not being sacrilegious. I'm not being dismissive and I'm not trying to be funny. It's a pan loaf cut up into wee squares 
And this is Ribena. It's blackcurrant syrup with water in it. And yet, in the 34 years that I've been a Christian, nearly every Sunday, not quite every Sunday, but nearly every Sunday, I've taken a little bit of bread like that and juice like that and I've eaten it and I've drunk it and by so doing I have said, you are enough for me. I remember your death. I remember your life. I remember your resurrection. You're the one that makes sense. Every time I eat bread and drink the cup, I'm reordering my life around this one simple idea. Jesus is who he said he was. And there are weeks that I come and I feel tired and weary and haven't got the strength to stand spiritually. The only strength I have is to open my mouth. That's how weak I feel. And even in that moment, God meets me. There are weeks when everything has gone wrong in my ministry, everything has gone wrong in my faith. My life feels heavy. Eating that bread and drinking that cup is a way of saying, I believe in the bread of life. There's a direct connection between John chapter 6 and what we are now about to do. But you can only participate in this if you have decided to follow Jesus Christ. If you are searching and yearning for him, he is here ready to give you bread. As you eat a tiny little square of pan loaf, Something happens, not to the bread, but God meets you and he gives you strength. As you drink a cup of blackcurrant cordial, you are identifying with the blood of Jesus and he meets you and gives you strength. And all you have to do is acknowledge that you need him. Let's pray together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and gave thanks. And he took the cup and he drank from it and said, all of you drink this cup. It is the new covenant of my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we remember the Lord's death until he comes. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand today. I'm not going to ask you to make responses like that. I'm just going to lay these options before you for you to consider. If you want to follow Jesus Christ, if you want to place him at the center of your life, if you're willing to turn away from all of your other contingencies and strengths and acknowledge that he is the only one that can carry you through, whether you feel strong or weak today isn't the issue. If you are willing to acknowledge that you need him, if you're willing to turn to him and ask him for forgiveness and grace and mercy and strength and hope, he will meet you as you eat this bread and drink this cup. If you refuse to do that, then let the bread and the cup pass you by. But my prayer is that each of us will meet with the living God today as we remember that he is the bread of life.